Hi, this is David Michelini, and I wrote Amazing Spider-Man, and you're listening to Amazing Spider-Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle, all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll binge your ears with reckless self-abandon. The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing through the air Sit back and prepare For the Amazing Spider-Talk Hello and welcome to The Amazing Spider-Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan and I am the editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mark Giannacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and now currently an editor at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Woo! Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for the special episode of Amazing Spider Talk. This is one of our Amazing Spider Talk and their Amazing Friends episodes. So we hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors and creators as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, Dan, and uh, for our guest in this episode, this is a, a, a very special guest for both of us because he he's kind of can be credited, or as he will uh, later say in the interview, blamed for as our, our gateway drug into comics. It's uh, uh, Spider-Man writer David Michelini, who, of course, wrote many issues of Web Spider-Man and then enjoyed that very storied run on Amazing Spider-Man in the 80s and 90s that covered... Uh, his collaborations with Tom McFarlane and Eric Larson and Mark Bagley. He he is uh, credited with creating Venom, Carnage, you know, Round Robin, which I know isn't that a famous a favorite story of yours, Dan, or at least a story that you like. Or I, I, I did a book report on it as a child, uh, as a last minute book report when I didn't read a book, and so I, I tried to pass this comic off as a book for a book report. So yes, it has a it has a good place in my heart there. <laughs> well, anyway, we have him uh, uh, over over the internet, over the phone. Uh, we we we, <laughs> we we did some special machinations here to make this happen, and obviously, we're we're both very thrilled that we were able to get David on the show. Um, you know, and just hearing him talk about uh, his his time at Marvel and with the Spider books. I mean, it definitely brought back a lot of great memories for you know me as an eight and nine year old and 10 11 12 30 i mean he was on the book for so many years i mean it really kind of took me through my teen years yeah yeah me too and uh this was just a joy to do so uh as per usual if you hear this sound please check out your ios device for a link to an article video or image to enhance your listening experience and of course we're going to have a ton of great images for this episode all of todd mcfarland's creations and mark bagley and and all the wonderful artists that uh david got to work with in the 90s but i guess we should just get to it mark our interview with david michelini His amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. Yeah, 
Yeah, so Dan and I are here with um, a very special guest here for Amazing Spider Talk. This is uh, David Michelini, who, of course, is a, a long-term uh, comic book writer uh, who enjoyed a very landmark run on Amazing Spider-Man in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He created a couple of characters I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, he wrote uh, for other Spider-Man books. He also enjoyed probably one of the most definitive runs on Iron Man uh, in the 1980s. Uh, he created a certain character. Some of you are probably seen in the movie theaters right now, Scott Lang as Ant-Man. Uh, so again, this is, this is probably one of the, 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 the bigger, bigger comic book creator personality types we've had on. So, so David, thank you very much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Hi, uh, <laughs> I'm, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very flattered and very happy to be here. Excellent. Well, well, David, you know, we, we, we in, the, in the comic book world, we, we always refer to the beginnings of somebody as their origin story. So I guess the best way to start with uh, this interview is just to ask you a little bit about how uh, you first got into the world of comic books. I mean, you know, what was kind of your, your, your gateway into that? Was this, was this a field that you wanted to come into or did you just kind of find yourself in it? Well, both. Uh, when I grew up reading comics, there were no credits, no, uh, so I actually had no idea that people actually wrote them. I just, I loved reading them as a kid, and I always wanted to be a writer, but I figured I'd be writing in prose and, and, and that sort of stuff. But uh, how I got into it, I was working for a, a commercial film production company in uh, Indiana. I was living in Kentucky across the river at the time, and DC Comics started something they called the Apprenticeship Program, where they would bring people in to work in the offices in New York and learn the business. So I, uh, I sent some sample writing into them, and uh, for some reason, my samples, instead of going to the apprenticeship program, ended up on editor Joe Orlando's slush pile, which is unsolicited manuscripts. And Joe's assistant at the time, Michael Fleischer, came in from lunch one day, had a few minutes, picked up the top script from the slush pile, read it, it happened to be mine, and he sent me a letter saying, uh, you show potential, but we can't work with anyone outside of the immediate New York area if you're ever in around, you know, feel free to contact us again. Well, two weeks later, I had closed out all of my contracts, my writing in uh, Kentucky, and I'd moved to New York, and I kind of showed up on D.C.'s doorstep saying, well, here I am. Uh, I, I think they were a little afraid at that point. It was like, oh, my God, what do we do? We, the guy's moved here, and, you know, we have to give him a chance. So I, uh, I worked with Michael Fleischer on my first four scripts for the D.C., uh, mystery books, they're called the mystery books, the horror books, House of Secrets, House of Mystery, etc. And by the time Michael left uh, to write the the Little Orphan Anna newspaper strip, I'd learned enough to work directly with Joe Orlando. I ended up spending five years writing for DC, and that's how I got into comics. This is back in 1973. Do you have any, like, books or characters that you really loved as a child uh, you know, that you'd reliably pick up? Oh, of course. Uh, I was I was mostly a DC fan, and I, I loved the off the wall characters. I mean, I read some Superman, a little bit of Batman, but I, I loved characters like uh, uh, Rip Hunter, Time Master, and Challenges of the Unknown, and uh, oh god, uh, Space Ranger, Atomic Knights, like that. And even in superheroes, I, I gravitated to the to the less big star, the the Flash, Green Lantern, the Atom. 
characters like that. So, yeah, I would pick those up whenever I had a dime. <laughs> Boy, does that age me or not. <laughs> um, so, so at what point did – so you were, you were DC for five years. Was that when you were on Aquaman? That's when I did most of my DC stuff. I did, I don't know, eight or nine Iron Man, uh, Aquaman stories. Yeah, that was during that five-year period. Because I was, I was trying to think. You're the one. You, you, you were with, uh, with the uh, Aqua, Aqua Boy, right? Or the, the, the son of Aquaman. The, the, that, that story, right? Weren't you the? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of funny that uh, I'm. It was, uh, I was at a, a screening, a local screening of the Ant Man movie, and I was introduced from a, a guy who owns the uh, local comic shop. And uh, it's a, fr- a friend of mine, he's a nice guy, and he introduces me as the guy who wrote this with that with that and killed Aquaman's son. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to no. lead with that, but... <laughs> it, it's always the deaths that define you, yeah? <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> hmm, I wonder if that'll be my epitaph on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> Say, that's okay. Jerry Conway still goes around talking about how he killed Gwen, so, you know, he, he, he just, he'll, he'll never shake that. <laughs> Wow. Well, do you think now there'll be a uh, a, a a a spider Aquaman's baby? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we, with Hollywood, you never know. Uh, <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, so, so at what point did you? Um, what were some of your? What was your entryway into Marvel uh, after your DC run? Well, I had I had met Jim Shooter at, at conventions, and I had always been a Marvel fan. Uh, I love Marvel comics. That's it's Marvel that got me back into reading comics back when I was in college and entered my second childhood. Um, I I I was <clears throat> I was kind of screwed by by DC after five years, which just disappointed me very much. And I called Jim Shooter. I said. Uh, it would be possible to get some work from from Marvel, and his response was, "Would today be too soon?" <laughs> and very, very flattering. Unfortunately, I was under a contract still with DC. But when I when I finished that, I went right over to Marvel, and and Jim handed me 17 pages of uh, an Avengers story to script, and right that day. So I I, I felt very much more wanted and appreciated at, at Marvel. I, I remember walking down the halls and. Shooter will be walking by and say, "Are you happy? Are they treating you well?" And it's like, "Holy cow! They appreciate writers here. This is great." So that's that's how I actually got into working for Marvel. The transition from DC. Early on in your career at Marvel, you created Scott Lang and the Taskmaster. What was your process in creating new characters in these long-established series, like for you know the Avengers or Iron Man? It any new character depends on. The situation, the background, uh, the editor, and and what you see needs to be done. Now, and as far as Taskmaster, when I first started working for Marvel, uh, there were a couple of gaps in the Marvel Universe, things that I, as a reader, didn't understand. It's like, one of them was like, where do all these goons come from? Every bad guy seems to have hordes of... Uh, I guess real world minions. <laughs> you know, where do they come from? Is there a, like a, a Thugs R Us store on the corner? I mean, is there a uh, you know an ad in the newspaper? Idiots, you know, who want to get you know high risk, low pay, you know, and wear a costume. Uh, so I figured there's got to be somewhere these guys come from, and that's where Taskmaster happened. Uh, I figured there here's a guy 
who who's got this ability that at the time was unique of basically um, eidetic reflexes or something. He sees something and he can do it. He can perform it. Muscle muscle memory becomes natural. Um, and so instead of being, you know, going out and fighting heroes or bad guys for danger, he trains other guys to do that so he can stay out of the danger. That was the original concept. But it was like that's that's where Taskmaster came for, from. I saw a need to explain something in the Marvel Universe. Uh, and it fit with the Avengers because, you know, he has so many powers and Avengers have so many characters. Uh, as far as Scott Lang is concerned, there was no Ant-Man at the time. Uh, Hank Pym was off being Giant Man and Goliath. And I thought, well, you know, Ant-Man's a cool character. There should be a new one. So I came up with, I wanted to come up with the civilian identity that was very interesting, that I liked, and that was, you know, would be something a little different. And the main thing about so I came up with a guy who was an ex-burglar, who was trying to go straight, but forced back to into the life because uh, his daughter was in danger, essentially. she in, in the comics, she had a heart condition. She needed a uh, an operation, but the only person who could perform that and, and with any chance of her surviving had been kidnapped. So Scott needed the... Uh, the Ant-Man costume and abilities to to rescue the uh, the doctor that is needed to save his daughter, and I I thought the character well here's a guy here's a single father with a daughter, I mean how many times has that been done at the time now I don't know how many <laughs> back then it was something uh, unusual, and uh, I love the idea that there's this nine year old girl whose father's a superhero and she can't tell anyone. <laughs> I mean, she's at school, and someone says, hey, my father can beat your father. And she says, oh, yeah, well, my father's, uh, a, oh, yeah? <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's, that's where Ant-Man came from. I saw, again, a gap in, in, in the Marvel Universe. There was no Ant-Man, so I, I filled that gap with Scott Lang. I mean, and obviously, I mean, both these characters have endured. So, I mean, even if you, you know, even, you know, unique at the time, but, I mean, like, you know the first, the first of the pioneers. I mean, they they kind of stand. I mean, did 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 you did you get a sense that these characters would kind of stick around, or I mean, were you like, well, I'll just do this and see see what happens with them? I never thought about basically what what would happen in the future. I mean, at the time, I, I wrote stories and characters that I thought were entertaining, that I would enjoy writing, that people would enjoy reading about. And if you do something good and it's quality, it'll it'll endure. I didn't, so I didn't, you know, you know, I didn't really think about, you know, what would happen in the future. Just maybe what I would do with those characters in the future, but their popularity was something that hap- would happen or not happen. Now, obviously, I mean, your your run on Iron Man, I mean, it, it I mean, for years was kind of considered the Iron Man, and you know, obviously, I mean, Demon in the Bottle is probably one of the this the landmark stories in, in, in comic book history and i'm just curious when you know when you enter onto these you know big franchise books like an iron man or spider-man or avengers i mean what's what's your approach in terms of like changing the universe so to speak or or, or implementing major change in the characters i mean do you do you see yourself as 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 actively trying to do that or do you have that you know there's some there's some creators that talk about well you can play with the toys but you have to put them back when you're done and make sure they're not too messed up i mean what's what's your approach when it comes to that considering 
what you've accomplished with with some of these big books over the years? Well, again, it kind of it depends on the character and the situation. Um, if I believe you know something's not broke, don't fix it. But everybody is going to pro- probably bring his or her personality and viewpoint to a character. I don't change characters just to change them. Uh, if I make changes, it's because I think something can be strengthened or uh, something might make the character work a little better. Uh, with Iron Man, uh, when I came to Marvel, I had never read an Iron Man comic. So I, I read the last five or six issues or stories some, in script form, uh, and, and I saw this guy whose world was coming apart. Uh, his, someone was trying to take over his company. Uh, uh, he was having problems with S.H.I.E.L.D. The government was trying to regulate superheroes, which complicated his, his life as head of the Avengers. And I thought, I always tried to take write Iron Man as Tony Stark, either Tony Stark in metal suit, Tony Stark in an Armani suit. Okay, Tony Stark's a real person. He, he's a superhero with no superpowers. His superpower is his brain, he's, but he's essentially just a human being. With all these pressures... It just seemed logical he'd need an escape valve or he's going to explode. Uh, he'd been established as a playboy and shown that he, you know, drinking at cocktail parties and stuff. So it just seemed, again, an organic progression that he would start going to the alcohol to kind of release the tension and the stress and that it would start to get the best of him. Um, and and that's, that's where that change came from. It was a big change. But to me, it was a logical change, and it was one that didn't really alter the character. It just showed an aspect of the character that was there to develop. Uh, what happens uh, to the character after that, you know, it depends on the next person who writes it or edit, edits it. Um, did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I just, oh, okay. you know, like there, there are some people who... You know, they they talk about the you know reverence for you know for Kirby and Lee and Dicko, which I, I mean I'm sure you had, and but it's you know, but they it's like it's almost like over reverence where they don't want to take a risk with a character, you know. But you know, I mean, obviously what you did, I mean, like you said, it was within the character, but there were risks involved. I mean, a story like Demon in a Bottle, I don't think had ever even been attempted. I mean, we had the the Green Lantern. Green Arrow, you know, speed, you know, the the Speedy does heroin stories in the in the 70s, but this was this, uh-huh. you know, for for a main character, this was very daring. I would I would say, I don't know. <laughs> My humble opinion. <laughs> well, I guess it was, but I have to give props to editor-in-chief Jim Shooter cuz we, and when I speak in we, referring to Iron Man as my co-plotter Bob Layton, when we came with up with the the pitch. I mean, I came up with the idea, Bob, and I developed it. We pitched it to Jim Shooter. The only the only qualification that he gave us was do it well. Yeah. He had the guy saw it as a good idea. He had confidence in us and what we would do, and he just said, you know, do it well. And and you know that was uh, of course we, what we had planned to do <laughs> from the start, if we could. But uh, you talk about reverence. Um, uh, there's a difference between reverence and respect. Like I, I, I don't revere any of the the people that came before before me, but I do respect them and respect what they did. And in, essentially, I I hope 
I wish all creators would do that. Uh, there's been experience, it's my experiences where that isn't the case, but I won't talk about them. But like when, when Bob and I came back to co-plot our second run on Iron Man, Denny O'Neill had been writing it, and he had set up some things that, <clears throat> that Bob and I really didn't want to deal with, some characters and some situations. So we didn't come in right away and, you know, those don't count anymore. We're going to ignore them. We took a two-issue arc where we resolved those situations uh, so we could go where we wanted to, but still respecting what had gone before and respecting what Denny had done. And we tried to come up with, you know, storylines that seemed logical and respectful of what he had done, but eased the way into what we wanted to do. So I think there's a difference between reverence and respect. So your first Spider-Man story that we that I could find was the, a Marvel team-up book, number 103, where you got to incorporate Scott Lang and Taskmaster into a team-up with Spider-Man, which is awesome. But um, did you ever foresee yourself, after this book, getting a long run with Spidey? I, I, you know, I don't think I foresaw myself. I certainly would love to do a long run on Spidey. Spider-Man was my favorite comic book superhero ever uh and it was him alone <laughs> that got me back into reading comics it was when i was a sophomore in college i was playing in a band and i remember i'd given up before age 14 i gave up reading comics because i wanted to quote grow up unquote and i gave all my comics away about like 500 comics uh which could probably buy me an island now but um <laughs> you, you mean I, your I mean, mom like, didn't throw them away <laughs> no, my mom was pretty cool. She didn't like monster <laughs> magazines, but comics were cool. Um, so anyway, when I was uh, 19, I guess, I, I was sitting on a, I was visiting our bass player, and I was sitting on a, an army trunk uh, in his basement. And he went to, look, I, I got up and he went up to look something, look at something in the, uh, in the trunk, and he opened it up and it was full of comics. And he was like 20. I'm 19. Here's this guy who's older than me. He reads comics. As you read comics, I say, "Oh yeah, it's great." You know, there's a character Spider-Man. You know, he's he's not like you know this this godlike superhero. He's like a real person. You know, he runs to catch an elevator and it closes before he can get there, and he flags down a cab and it goes by and splashes it with mud, just like you and me, like real people. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went to a um, a convenience store to their spinner rack. And there was the latest issue of Spider-Man, and, and behind one of the, the, the stacks there was uh, a previous issue. It was a two-part story. I think it was like issue 67, 68. And I read them, and I was hooked. So I've loved Spider-Man ever since. He's my favorite character. The idea of actually writing a Spider-Man story was, was terrific. And the idea of you know, writing a long run, well, that would just be wonderful. So I didn't foresee it, but it was, it was something I always had wanted to do. Well, of course, you did eventually get a sustained run when you started on Web of Spider-Man uh, in, like, I guess it was around the mid-'80s when that book came out. I mean, you, you came up fairly early. I mean, what was what was your approach? I mean, did, were, you, were you told that this was going to kind of be an ongoing thing for you, or were you filling in on some issues, and then it just kind of became, you know, issue after issue? Um, you know, what was how – did, how did you go into that? Do you remember? Yeah, Web of Spider-Man was uh, was assigned to me, so I, I was the regular writer on it for for a while. So it was yeah, it was something that I I wrote every month. So it was a a regular series. My first chance to write Spider-Man on a regular basis. You know, we've heard we've talked to different people over the years, and we've kind of heard two different 
answers to this question. I mean, when you were writing it, was it kind of was WebUp supposed to be its own thing in terms of the tone versus amazing versus spectacular, or was it supposed to kind of feel connected to the other Spider books? It, it like like I said, that answer always changes. So I'm curious from the from the people who actually worked on it what they say. Yeah, no, that, that's correct. Uh, editor Jim Owsley, who later changed his name to Christopher Priest, uh, wanted the three books to have separate identities. He wanted Amazing Spider-Man, which was written by Tom DeFalco, to be the standard, uh, what you're used to, Spider-Man hero book. Uh, he wanted the spectacular Spider-Man, being written by Peter David at the time, to be the dark Spider-Man, the dark, gritty stories. Web of Spider-Man, written by me, was supposed to be traveling Spider-Man. <laughs> he wanted it to be in different locations, different settings, which being a, a, a freelance news photographer uh, offered those opportunities. So it gave it its own identity, but it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> I mean, it took me away from most of the, the supporting cast who lived in New York. And it took me away from one of the most important members of the supporting cast, New York itself. So here I was in, in the hills of Kentucky or in Ireland or in Kansas, and, like, you know, coming up with stories for these places with, I guess, oh, Joy Mercado was the, only, was the reporter that went with him sometime. That was about the only ongoing supporting cast member that I could use from issue to issue. So that's the story of... Uh, the different viewpoints of the three Spider-Man books at the time. Well, you would eventually get Peter back to New York in Web of Spider-Man, and there's a special moment in Web of Spider-Man 18 where a mysterious hand pushes Peter towards a subway uh, car. Um, we've talked to like Tom DeFalco and Jim Salakrup about this, and they told us about this female Venom plans. Do you remember what the original plans for this character were and, and, and what happened to those plans? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there was also a second uh, little teaser that came into the bo a book. I don't know the number of the Web of Spider-Man that I had plotted before I switched over to Amazing that someone else scripted, where Spider-Man is on the uh, clinging to the side of a building and a hand comes out from a window, grabs his ankle and slings him off, and it doesn't trigger his spider sense. That was the whole key to these things, because the, uh, uh, the alien symbiote had been established as not triggering the spider sense. That was supposed to be the clues to reader that there's something happening, there's something with the, the symbiote. Uh, my original idea was to have, what I was setting up in web, was to have uh, the, a female character, a woman who had been in labor, and her husband had taken her outside and was trying to flag down a cab to get her to the hospital, and I tied it in with a, was going to tie it in with a graphic novel, The Revenge of the Living Monolith, and uh, the husband steps out into the street to flag down a cab, but the cabbie's looking up at Spider-Man fighting the living monolith, and he hits the husband and kills him. The woman at that point, is so traumatized, she, she goes into labor. She loses the baby. Her husband's killed. She goes into a catatonic state. When she comes out of it, finally, uh, she blames Spider-Man for, for these deaths and, she, and, and focuses her loss and her, her disturbed personality into a hatred for Spider-Man, whom she blames for these, these two deaths. 
And at that point, the symbiote, hating Spider-Man for rejecting it, finds her, joins with her, and they become the character that became Venom, who, whose sole purpose in life was to kill Spider-Man. So that was what I originally had planned. Now, when when I was switched over to Amazing, uh, Jim Salakrup wanted to do something special for issue 300. So I suggested this character that I was started to develop and tease in Web of Spider-Man. He liked the idea, but he didn't, at the time at least, think... He, he thought readers might have a problem with uh, a female character, a villain, going toe-to-toe with Spider-Man. Now, that, of course, would not be uh, the case today, I'm sure. But he asked if I would uh, change it to a male character. So I came up with a different origin. I came up with the Eddie Brock character, tied that in with one of Peter David's spectacular Spider-Man stories, uh, and made gave Eddie a reason to hate Spider-Man for the and then for the symbiote to join with him to become Venom, uh, a character, a villain whose sole motivation is to kill Spider-Man. And that's the whole story of the origin. Yeah, well, I mean, for something that had to, that was changed, you know, kind of in the. I don't want to say the eleventh hour, but you know, changed. I mean, he ended up creating probably one of the most famous characters of the last thirty years. I mean, did you ever get a sense that? And I know we, when I asked this earlier, say so you never truly get a sense. But I guess with Venom, I mean, were you surprised by just how much that character took off? How much? Uh, by what standards? What do you, what do you mean? Well, it just seems. Well, I mean, in terms of, I mean, Venom's popularity, it just seemed that, that, that everybody, I mean, I, I read the Venom comics were, were some of the first comics I read when I was younger. And I just, I just remember, you know, the, 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 the talk around, you know, the talk around the block was this character is awesome. You know, like, like we, we want more Venom. We want Venom in comics when Venom showed up. The second time they fought on the beach, everyone wanted those issues. When Venom was on the island, they wanted those issues. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, Venom was just this phenom for, I think, a certain generation of readers. And and to the point that I think there's people who today are still just very fondly remember this character. And, I, and you know, I, I, I wonder, was it kind of both a blessing and a curse for you because it seemed like as time went on into the 90s you had to use venom more and more and you know like oh maximum carnage there's this there's that i mean did it did that kind of surprise you just how much the character became such a thing i guess (laughs) uh yeah i guess it kind of surprised me because like i i uh, I just wrote a character that I thought would be a cool character. One, again, that I, I would enjoy writing, people would enjoy reading about. And you say about using it, and it was true. Sales spiked when Venom was used. But you're talking about being used more and more. i got to give props to Jim Salakrup, the editor, because he kept a close reign on Venom. He turned down requests of other editors to use him, and he never forced me to use the character. So the only times that Venom, when Jim was uh, editing the book, when Venom appeared was when I had an idea for something new, 
for something that pro- progressed the character, for something that we hadn't seen before. And I think that was one of the factors in the character's popularity, because every time he came out in a book and an issue of Amazing during that era, you saw something they hadn't seen before. Here's, oh, here's another aspect of the relationship. Here's an aspect of the character. Here's something that, you, that hasn't been done before. Then the editors change. And the new editor's policy was totally different. He opened up Venom to everyone. In fact, he, the editor himself, was the first person to write Venom besides me. And, and he also wanted to use Venom. He was very event-oriented. Uh, the, the crossovers happened. The multi-issue things happened. Uh, Venom, here's Car- He, The last thing I did totally on my own uh, during the editorial was something I started with the Carnage issues, which... And unfortunately, the new editor allowed me to do them the way I wanted to before he started uh, having a heavier hand in the process. Uh, so that's why, you know, Venom started appearing more and appearing other places. And I think that's why, one of the reasons why his popularity grew previously, because it was only, you know, it was more rare, and it was, there was a reason for having a Venom story instead of just, you know, kicking up sales. Yeah, I mean, I just remember Venom. Venom showing up was the event when I was a kid. You know, there like you go. Was, you know, it was <laughs> like you know, I still you know. Well, well, Dan and I recently we did an episode. We're doing a, a on on the show kind of a run on what we find to be essential uh, Spider-Man stories that are maybe a little more outside the box. And and we one of the ones we picked was that that first full I think it was like a three part arc on with Venom. Uh, where you know, kind of culminate. You know, he breaks out of prison, and it culminates with him, him and Spider-Man fighting on the beaches of Montauk. And we just, you know, one of the things we commented on was, like you said, it's just he was. There was just like a new surprise with the character every issue, which is, I think, what you know, for, for readers like me at least, made made him so popular. Yeah, and I, I think it's safe to say, Mark, that both you and I got into reading comics by the hook of Venom, or at least Venom and Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the other, the other well, big th- moment in, in your early run of Amazing Spider-Man was the proposal, engagement, and marriage of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. And, you know, th- this story has been, you know, talked over by people, you know, left and right for the past however many years. Um, about how suddenly it came together, or you know, was this a, a company mandate? Um, what were your thoughts on on the development of this story, and what was your approach in trying to make it work? Okay, it it was indeed a mandate from the company. Um, the way I have heard it from people who should know is that. Stan Lee, who was writing the newspaper strip at the time, wanted to marry off uh, Peter Parker and uh, Mary Jane Watson in the newspaper strip. So it was decided that, okay, if he's going to do that, then it needs to be done in the comics. That that came from above Jim Shooter. Uh, I hated it. Uh, I thought <laughs> two things. First off, this isn't the character. I mean, I was to write. I wanted to write the Spider-Man that I read that got me into comics. That was a student who, you know, had trouble, you know, with his life and then juggling this and that. Not a married man, 
I mean, also, I was not married at the time, so was, oh, I was a student. You know, I don't know what it's like to be married. I've never been married. And most of the people reading, I mean, the, the median age, I think, is probably higher now, but I think was 15 years old, 15, 16, and people reading the comics uh, then. And, you know, that not a lot of the 15, 16-year-olds are married. I really don't want to do this. But my, my pleas fell on deaf ears. It was something that's going to happen. There's nothing I could do about it. So I figured, okay, if... If it's got to be done, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make it a happy marriage. I'm going to have a good relationship. I'm going to have love. I'm not going to have, you know, bickering. I'm not going to have uh, Mary Jane, you know, complaining about Peter being, you know, being Spider-Man being more popular than her as an actress. I'm not going to have, uh, oh, Peter, don't go out. You're in danger. Oh, Peter, don't do this. I was going to give the poor schmuck a bit of happiness. You know, he's been through so much. Let's have him have a happy marriage and let's have it work so that was my approach and uh i, I worked hard at that and i was i was pretty happy with the way it came out even though i i hated the idea of it uh, i i liked kind of liked what we did with it it's 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 so funny you just you, you very i don't think dan and i have talked to a single person who said yeah i liked i i, I liked that peter and mary jane were married and yet when they were broken up in the comics there was just so much outrage <laughs> so it's just you, you just go all the way back and it's like you know if if it wasn't for the the comic strip with stan lee i mean this probably would have never happened <laughs> i mean it's that's True. what it sounds like it's not it's not like any you know you or tom defalco or or or, or jerry conway or anyone was like yeah what we need is a married peter no one's no one has said that <laughs> yeah yeah you know the other the other big thing from your work on Amazing Spider-Man was, of course, you, you got to work uh, with three, I think, of the, the bigger artists who have worked on the character in Tom McFarlane, Eric Larson, and Mark Bagley. And I guess, you know, the start of those three, I mean, Tom McFarlane is kind of, I mean, he's almost his own, well, he's not even almost, he's his own separate thing in terms of comics now. It's like, you know, on, a, on another stratosphere. I mean, when he came in, you know, I know that he was, when we talked to Jim Salakrup, he mentioned how he kind of brought Todd in and, and tried to nurture him. So, I mean, what was your collaboration with Todd like in the beginning there? Well, uh, I remember Jim showing me, you know, telling me, suggesting Todd, and I looked at some of his uh, previous work, and I thought, oh, this looks interesting. Sure, let's give this a try. And uh, I, my... My one, I have no negative memories of work, uh, working with Todd. It was like he was, he was a thorough professional. He, he stuck to the plot. He drew, he was a, a very clear storyteller, which as a story writer myself is the, probably the most important thing in an artist. Uh, at the time, work was done what was called Marvel style, which is basically the plot is written, sent to a penciler, a penciler draws it, pages are sent to the writer, he adds the dialogue, captions, the sound effects that goes to an anchor, a letter, and then an anchor to finish. So I was actually writing my words to the pictures that Todd drew, and his pictures were so interesting and exciting that it made my work better. It made the dialogue crisper, more interesting, more entertaining, hopefully. So, uh, and I can say he was a thorough, thorough professional. I remember one instance, like when I try to work, when I work with an artist on a regular basis, I try to 
gear at least parts of my story to their strengths and to their desires. Because when an artist is happy with what they're doing, they're, they're going to do better work. So I asked through Jim Salakrup if there's anything Todd wanted to draw. And Todd was reluctant because he had just gotten on the book, and he, I was told, again, through Salakrup, that he really didn't want to seem pushy or something like he wanted this to this way. I thought that was incredibly professional. And he finally said, well, he'd kind of like to draw someone with a cape. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I did a Prowler story because not, not many Spider-Man villains have capes. But uh, it was great. It was great working with Todd. It was a wonderful experience. Was, he did a terrific Spider-Man. I mean, was there a sense within Marvel that this guy was going to take off the way he I'm mean, very humble well, there, know. so probably not. I mean, it's not like he came in as some hot shot, so probably not then, right? No, there wasn't a sense. Uh, I don't know his sense, but uh, at, yeah. at Marvel, <laughs> I, I think there was a growing, a growing sense of, wow, yeah, hey, this guy's pretty cool, and wow, the sales are going up, and we might have something here, so... I, I, I don't know what Todd's a- attitude was, but you know, he, whatever his attitude was, he remained a professional artist. So that was what was important to me. What was it like being a writer on the book with seeing the sales come in? I mean, I don't know if the sales on the book have ever been as high as they were then. And then you have Todd getting his own Spider-Man number one and that book just, you know, blowing up, uh, you know, in terms of sales. You know, what was it like to be like involved in, in Marvel, especially on the Spider-Man books during this time? Well, it was generally great. I mean, you know, uh, especially the royalty checks. What can I tell you? Um, <laughs> but uh, well, the funny thing was, I mean, it was a period of growth and popularity in comics in the 90s, but the the sales really grew when Todd was the was the penciler. But you know something? They actually got even higher when Eric got on and when even higher when Mark got on. It, it was just, it was... I mean, Todd was the beginning. He, he gave it the, the inertia, the push that, you know, and he kept getting new writers. I, I like to think that, you know, the consistency of characterization through my stories helped, but, you know, the the wave of popularity just kept growing, and it just the sales kept going up, and it was like, especially when I was working with, with Jim Salakrup, he gave me a great deal of, of freedom, you know, uh, depending on his, you know, you know, if I did stuff that he, you know, approved. And, you know, it was and working with a good artist and working with an editor gave me some freedom and working on my favorite character of all time. It, it was the golden age of my career. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and it, the the book would be double shipping for periods during this, this period, too. I know during the, your run with McFarlane, but I think also during the Larson and Bagley years. So, I mean, in terms of having... I mean, Spider-Man is a double-ship book, it seems, perpetually now, but at the time, that was unique. I mean, was that... What, what kind of pressure did that put on you in terms of scripting to, to get to, you know, double the output? I mean, was that manageable? <laughs> All other things going well, yes. If the, the editor is doing his or her job, if the pencil is doing his or her job, I was able to do my job. And, you know, it, it gave me an opportunity to write three more stories a year. Uh, you know, to do things, you know, keep things going. It was, again, my favorite character. If, if things are not going so well, it's, it's, it's not fun. And uh, there was an editorial change. And you'll notice before, under Jim Salakup, there was never a fill-in issue. 
the editorial editors changed, and at least three times there are fill-ins, and one of them was the uh, uh, the bi-monthly summer issues. Things got so far behind. I was always on time with plots. Let me say that, <laughs> but the book got so far behind that I was forced to have fill-in issues, and I gave up those summer issues one year, you know, three months worth, and I was working ahead on the next issue. By Thanksgiving schedule, we were behind again, and I have no control over that. All I have control over is when I do my plots, and if they're on time, everything else is, you know, I can't control. So, yeah, when everything's behind and, and I'm not giving time and it looks to me to catch up and I can't catch up because other people are behind, the work's taken away from me. The paychecks are taken away from me. The, the, the consistency of characterization is taken away from me. So at that point, you know, doubling up on buy issues became uh, a very negative thing. We've talked a little bit about uh, Todd McFarlane. What was your collaboration process with, like, uh, with Eric Larson and Mark Bagley? Um, Eric hated me, uh, so that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't cool. Uh, he, uh, there was a, a, I wrote a letter to Wizard Magazine. They had mentioned something about uh, Todd McFarlane being co-creator of Venom. Well, it's a matter of semantics, but I had the character worked out before Todd was brought on to Amazing Spider-Man. He visualized the character, but no one was with me when I came up with the idea and the development of the character. And I wrote them a very polite letter saying uh, saying that, pretty much saying that, saying, Todd McFarlane's great, you know, I love what he did on the books. It never would have been as popular without him. But I had created this character when I was writing Web of Spider-Man. Uh, Todd didn't reply, but Eric sent a letter, and they sent me a fax of it, which I no longer have, unfortunately, uh, which which... A, he called me a clown. He called my work <laughs> stupid. And he gave Todd credit for Todd drew this, and he did that. And the funny thing was, he said, and Todd came up with the, the long foot-long tongue and the green drool. If you go back, Todd didn't do that. That didn't happen until Eric. So Eric actually gave Todd credit for something he had done. <laughs> so I'd also heard from more than one person that, that Eric was at conventions, uh, saying that Marvel had no good writers. Well, he was only working with me at the time. So who else is talking about this? All of this did not make for a wonderful uh, working relationship. You know, if he didn't like me, didn't like my work, why didn't he just leave and get something else? Probably because he's making too much money, but that's, right. that's mere supposition. Bagley, pardon me, Mark. Uh, Mark and I had different perspectives on storytelling. Mark had uh, seemed to have an attitude that a number of artists have that plots are general. Now my plots were five or six pages long, they're very detailed. They worked out, you know, A went to B, went to C, went to D. Um, and Mark had, uh, I'll give one example, and I don't remember the issue number, I don't remember the specifics, so, you know, with that in mind, there was an issue where I had, uh, there was some people stealing stuff at Empire State University. Uh, and my plot, they're doing this. Spider-Man swings onto the scene. There's an incident that happens that triggers one of the bad guys to say something. The Spider-Man uses later when he hears something else as a clue to find out where they are at the end of the book. 
there was a, a, a specific incident that happened that triggered that naturally, that comment. Well, when I got the pages, there are the crooks doing that. The incident happens that triggers the comment, and then Spider-Man swings onto the scene. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If Spider-Man isn't there when this guy says this, how is he going to put together, you know, later to get the clue? You know, so I, I called Mark, and I explained it to him. And his attitude, and I am quoting directly here, was, and I quote, well, it's your story. Not, oh, I understand. Or, oh, yeah, that's, that needs that sequence. He says, well, it's your story. Which, again, if you, if you have A, B, C, D, and it's drawn A, C, B, D, it's not going to work. <laughs> and he, he just he seemed to be very concerned about the, the visuals. Um, I choreograph action stuff very carefully. I try to use the unique elements of the character. With Spider-Man, it would be wall-crawling, webbing, spider-sense, acrobatics. And I try to choose settings where the props can be interesting, a, a carnival, a, an automobile graveyard, something that can, can, you know, that not just, you know, they're hitting each other inside of, you know, outside on the street. Mark had a tendency to choreograph these things himself, which I'm, I imagine was because he wanted to do some stuff that he thought was dynamic and interesting and was concerned about the visuals. I, I was just wasting my time. <laughs> Eventually, I got to a point where I would I, I just leave it to him. I would say, okay, here's three pages of fight. It starts like this. It ends like this. And just let him do what he wanted to do because it was just wasting my time choreographing the fight. So, again, I'm not, I don't mean to say anything bad about Mark. I mean, obviously, he's still very popular, getting lots of work. Everybody loves him. That's great. More power to him. It just he and I looked at the storytelling process very differently, and it was not a, 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 a melding of uh, creative minds towards the same goal. Hmm. No, that's totally, yeah, I mean, this, some people just have a different kind of dynamic. I mean, you know, like it's, that, that just sure. makes sense. Do you, do you remember your reaction to the whole image revolution during this time? I know that that affected two of the people you had worked with and Todd and Eric. I mean, you know, especially with like the whole debate about who, who created or co-created Venom coming, you know, kind of that argument stemming from, Eric and you know the whole point of the whole image founding was you know this artist creator rights thing um I mean were you did you kind of sit back and look at this and be like you know what kind of bs is this or were you like more power to you guys I mean I'm just curious what you know from someone who was not in the throes of it but who obviously knew the people involved <laughs> yeah I thought it was interesting I mean there have been attempts to start other companies in the past with with some success and a lot of failures, and I, I really wasn't didn't have an opinion or much thoughts because I was I was I had plenty of work at Marvel. I was working, I was making a living, and my my you know my dance card was full. I was writing Spider-Man, so it was I was just a very impartial observer and thought, well, that's that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, but I, I really didn't think about it very much. One of the other big villains you created during uh, your Amazing Spider-Man run was Carnage. Uh, what went into the development of that character? Where did this idea come from? Well, one of the elements, or two elements about Venom that a lot of people didn't seem to recognize. One was his unique motivation, that he wanted to kill Spider-Man. 
Because and that's another thing that Eric in his letter said. Well, you know, here's this cliche. What's so unusual about that? He wants to kill Spider-Man. Everybody wants to kill Spider-Man. Well, no, they didn't. <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Octopus, uh, the Rhino, uh, Green Goblin, all of these people wanted to commit their crimes. They wanted to stay away from Spider-Man. But the only character who actually went after Spider-Man was Craven, and that was because he was a hunter and Spider-Man was good prey, not because he just wanted to kill him. So it was actually a unique motivation. Uh, people didn't really see that, although I did a story, I think the one you're talking about on the beach where, uh, uh, or a beach, where apparently Spider-Man's killed, Venom ceases to exist. It's Eddie Brock and it's a symbiote again. But the other thing that people sometimes missed was the fact that although he's a psychotic serial killer, he has a sense of morality, his own twisted sense of ethics. Uh, the example I always use is that if he sees a kitten in a tree, uh, he'll go save the kitten. Now, if he has to smash through a bus full of uh, nuns and orphans to do it, killing most of them, he'll do it because, by God, he's going to save that kitten because he's a good guy. He's the hero. I wanted to point that out, that it's a twisted sense of morality, but it is a sense of morality. So I wanted to create a character who was like Venom but didn't have that sense of morality, who is, who is a total, totally uh, sociopathic. Uh, so I came up with Carnage, uh, a sociopathic, <laughs> totally unremittent, un, un uh, not unremittent. Uh, anyway, a total sociopath has no redeeming value. He's just a murderer, a killer who worships chaos and blood. And that's where Carnage came from. So I could contrast him with Venom and at the same time do something that I thought the readers would really think, would never expect, team up Venom with Spider-Man. And to only team up, they'd have something that's more dangerous than Venom. Okay, here is Carnage, because he doesn't have this, any sense of morality. So that's where Carnage came from. I guess one of the last kind of big ongoing arcs that uh, came with your time on the book, and, and it was an arc that you never had the opportunity to, to complete, was involving the return of Peter's parents. And Now, did you, do you recall what the long-term plan for the storyline was? Because, I mean, we've actually heard, we, we've heard rumors that there, there was no long-term plan. And, and that's probably, it's, what, what, I mean, what's, what's your take on, on that whole plot? Like, you know, did they, were they supposed to be clones or androids or were they supposed to be the real thing? I mean, how did, how did you write them? The rumors are true. Uh, I had no idea who they were. I mean, uh, my last year on Amazing was not my happiest year. The the new editor had a heavy hand, and I did a, a lot of stories as best I could, but that were stories that the editor wanted, uh, not stuff I wanted to do. He thought it would be cool. Like I say, he was event-minded. He was very concerned about selling the book, that the book sells. And I, I, I'm sure he was sincere that, that he thought he felt that was his job as editor, as a, the editor you know, for the company selling the book. He thought it would be cool to have Peter's parents come back. I said, okay, what are, are they really his parents? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, are they, I, like you say, are they aliens? Are, are they clones? Are they the real thing? He didn't know. He had no idea where it was going. So for a full year... I had to play with that subplot, have a scene each issue with these people that I had no idea who they were, what their purpose was, what they were trying to do. 
it was just it was very very difficult because it's like you know how do I make something interesting with these people kinds of I don't know who they are so I mean I left before I know I I I heard they were like I forget what they were they were, they were I, I don't know I don't know I, it was resolved after I left the book but that was that was one of the main reasons I did leave because I realized that finally even though I'm writing Spider-Man my favorite character even though I'm making a ton of money. I'm just not happy anymore. <laughs> so I, that was the reason I left. I have to ask you about when well, we're talking about rumors. I have to ask you about Web of Spider-Man 20 and that series that um, there's so much talk around this uh, supposed bomb threat involving the IRA at Marvel headquarters that evacuated the building and then caused a change in the storyline. Can you speak about what actually happened uh, with this story and and with these uh, with this supposed bomb threat? Yeah, I haven't talked about it before because you know you don't want to give publicity to that sort of thing. But if rumors are out there, I, I got to yeah, the rumors are true. Uh, <laughs> I did a story based in well, of course, Peter Park had to travel, so I did a story based in Ireland. I I read about the troubles in Northern Ireland. I read four books and watched two TV specials and took notes about the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. I did my three-part story plots that were approved by, by Marvel. Um, I was... The, the thing that I wanted to say, I, I was not pro-IRA, I was not anti-IRA, I was not pro-England, anti-England. I went into the background of, of where all these troubles started and and the basis for the the, tr- the troubles were, I mean, what I wanted to say, the one thing I wanted to say was killing people is bad. <laughs> I mean, how can you argue with that? That was the only way I, re- way I was going in this story. Uh, I, we did the first story. It was published. The second one was drawn, I believe. third one was plotted. And Marvel got a bomb threat. They got it called. Uh, someone claiming to be for the IRA. Uh, Marvel, the building was was evacuated. It was look, there was no bomb, uh, but it was scary as hell. And and I was asked to rewrite the story, and I, I declined because there was nothing wrong with my story. <laughs> you know, I didn't say the IRA is good, the IRA is bad. I said it's bad to kill people, and you know I. I I declined. I didn't say I refused, or, uh, but I said, okay, I will step back, and I will not say anything. You can, you can have someone there at Marvel rewrite it, and someone did so that it was Roxxon behind it, not the IRA, and they did it in one issue instead of the two, and uh, that was when I went over to Amazing Spider-Man. Hmm. So that's that story. Yeah, it's it's a shame, but uh, you know, people are. People are nuts. <laughs> paper, you know. Moral of the story. <laughs> yeah, it's bad to keep, kill people, and people are nuts. Those are two things. Yeah. That <laughs> Mission accomplished, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess so. And now, and, and, and I promise this is the last uh, rumor-type question, but uh, we, we had okay. read somewhere that there was a story you had pitched once where you would reveal Peter's identity to the public. And, and I, I guess if this is true, what were the circumstances of the pitch and, and why why did editorial not run run with it? 
yeah, I, I wanted to do a, a year-long arc, a year-long story, where Peter Parker's identity was revealed. I didn't want to be, you know, his life changes forever. I wanted to be clear, at least in my talking with the media and stuff, that no, this is temporary. I wanted to explore the situation of why Spider-Man has a secret identity, which I, I think I don't think anybody at Marvel has a secret identity anymore. But at the time, it was like I had him suddenly, uh, Mary Jane, whose acting career was just about to blossom, and suddenly Mrs. Spider-Man. So that creates a little tension. Uh, Aunt May is hounded by the press. You know, uh, supervillains know where to find Peter Parker, and he eventually is is kept by the government in an old uh, National Guard armory, with surrounded by troops and tanks and stuff, with his 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 relatives, wife and his 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 aunt, and and they're basically under siege. And and Peter Parker, I Spider-Man has to take jobs for the government in order to you know, pay for this, in order, in order to get this protection for his family. And some of the jobs aren't exactly black and white, not exactly good guy stuff, but he has to protect his family. He can't do that. You know, that all the villains know where he is and stuff, know who he's related to. And I want to show the hassles that happen when he doesn't have a secret identity. And then at the end, I think I was going to do something with the, the purple man who, who controls people's minds, can control their memories and stuff, doing something worldwide that erased this whole year, or not the whole year, the whole thing about Peter Parker being Spider-Man and place something in their minds that they even see, like a magazine with, you know, Peter Parker is Spider-Man, they'll see it as, you know, uh, President Clinton caught again, you know, something like that instead. Uh, and, you know, that's what I wanted to do, and that's why I wanted to do it. And it was rejected, I believe, because uh, it was, they thought it was too difficult to believe that this could all be swept under the table and no one would remember anything. So. <laughs> well, Mar Marvel owes you some royalty checks for doing exactly that storyline years later <laughs> in a more unbelievable oh, way. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. They, they actually did. I, 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 I think I heard, well, like I say, I think every, nobody has a secret identity these days, but I didn't know they had done that. Oh, well, well, they did like a big mind wipe thing to uh, erase the fact that Peter's identity had been revealed. Um, <laughs> so, Purple Man or no, it did happen. Let's see, I oh, think I like, I like Purple Man better than Mephisto because, you know. <laughs> oh. Uh. oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hap that's, hap that's happened before. When I've, I come up with an idea and 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 no, no, we can't do that because such and such. And then a year or two later, someone else comes along and does it. And I think it's largely in part to changing in editorships and changing in viewpoints and changing in the audience. But it is a little frustrating to, to see other people doing what I was going to do and I couldn't do it. But Yeah. <sighs> that's life. Like I say, people are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, David, our final question, uh, we ask all of the creators that we have on our show, um, is what does it mean to you personally that you're one of the few people that had the opportunity to write Spider-Man comics for a living? Uh, it was a thrill. It was, uh, a, you know, a, a dream come true, essentially. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to be able to do that, and it's, uh, it's a highlight of my career.
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, David. Yeah. Well, you're welcome, and thanks so much for, for your interest. I, I hope your listeners get a bit of uh, insight and entertainment from this. I know they will. We have a lot of big Venom fans. <laughs> hey, me too. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say the Venom fans, have, I think, you know, they could probably start their own like congressional district or something. There's so many. <laughs> I mean, it's just. Oh, well, if they do that, I'll run for office. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing friend. Well, Mark, that was a lot of fun. So we want to thank David Michelini coming on the show again. A lot of rumors confirmed. Yes, you know, I I I didn't think we were going to get into a whole gossip mill with him, but you know, he 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 happily obliged, and you know, yeah, he should get some credit for Civil War and the the eventual aftermath and erasure, right? Yeah, I mean, his story is like almost exactly that. Like he's describing this government, like trying to like recruit Spider-Man to do like you know missions for them. Like you could very easily see that being the result of Spider-Man staying on pro-registration if if it had gone that way. Yeah, and of course, you know, David's big run on, on Iron Man, I mean, you have to think, you know, would he have come, become involved too at some point, so. Yeah, sure. Well, okay, like you said, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, of course, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and our old Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please be sure to leave us a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing and we'll read it on the air. It's the only way that our community gets larger by reaching out with, to new people with m- new comments. And of course, if you have any opinions on the comics or, or David Michelini that we've discussed today, you know, Please make sure you email them to us at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com, and we'll address and read those on the air as well. Yeah, and uh, be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages at Facebook.com slash SuperiorSpiderTalk and Facebook.com slash ChasingAmazing, because these are great places to keep up with us in between shows as we put up articles that we've written, breaking news, Rumors confirmed from famous Spider-Man creators. We do it all on these Facebook pages, so please check them out. Yeah, awesome. And as always, if you want to follow the adventures of Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales in a little more detail, be sure to subscribe to our sister podcast, The Ultimate Spin. Maybe they would want it to be called Our Brother Podcast, since it's all men doing this (laughs) show. But, uh, of course, that's hosted by Brian, Kyle, and Noor, the international cast. Uh, Check out The Ultimate Spin, uh, our our, our sister podcast. I'm going to keep saying it. Yeah, and uh, just because we didn't get to do the full sales drive this episode, Dan, doesn't mean that you all should forget to check out our friendly neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club that gets you some free stuff and helps support our show. Uh, And also, in terms of supporting our show, we also got to spend a special thank... uh, Let me start again. And also, in terms of supporting our show, let's send a special shout-out to our theme song, courtesy of Ryland Bojack, and our outro, outro song, courtesy of Magic. Yeah, and also special thanks to Nick Cagnetti, Ray Sumter, Ron Friends, and Sal Buscema for our show's awesome original artwork. So, Mark, where can we find you on the internet this week? 
Yeah, well, uh, keep finding me on uh, superiorspidertalk.com, where I just recently wrapped up uh, the 10 greatest Peter and Mary Jane Watson stories. Dan, I hope you enjoyed this series as much as I have writing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, once we got to number three, which was probably, it was doomed affairs as we discussed on the show, is probably my favorite MJ uh, Peter story. I was really thrilled to see your top two. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a couple of surprises. And, you know, keep keep being posted because in the coming weeks we'll, we might be starting a new list. So, you know, keep your eyeballs peeled. Uh, and also, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMBlock. Dan, what about yourself? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, my Spider-Man account, at SupSpiderTalk with my brand new awesome avatar that I'm very happy with. Oh, that's beautiful, Dan. Uh, thanks, Mark. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter on my normal account for all my movie reviews and such at at Dan Gavazdan. And, of course, you can find anything that I'm doing on superiorspidertalk.com or grindmyreels.com for my movie reviews. Yeah, are we going to get an Ant-Man review on Grind My Reels, Dan? Uh, I put up a big Facebook thing, so maybe I'll do an Ant-Man review, but I'm definitely doing a review of a new movie called The End of the Tour, which is about um, David Foster Wallace, who uh, wrote the book Infinite Jest, one of my favorite novels. Oh, fun. Yeah, so uh, come on by and check it out. Mark, uh, you know, I, I was in New York the other weekend, and, and as per usual, I did not let you know that I was in New York. Uh, you always forget, you I, know, <laughs> my, my one of my only friends in New York. And yet I never let you in on the fact that I'm there. Um, That's OK. I just go to Essabagel without you. So. Yeah. Oh, you broke my heart. Uh, so there you go. But uh, I had to fit in food into this podcast at some point. Um, but I was in the subway and, you know, there was an, a nearly fatal incident where a man was standing, you know, I guess on the yellow line, you know, pretty close to the train. But a hand came out of nowhere and tried to push him in front of the train. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I, I heard about this. I read about it in the New York Post. Initially, they were just blaming uh, Mayor de Blasio for you know New York going back to the bad old days. Uh, but they're wrong. It's not that. It was actually uh, my Aunt May, uh, who apparently was in labor and was – I know. She's like 90 and in labor. I mean, you know, <laughs> crazy, Jeez. right? Yeah. I know. Um, you know, so anyway, she was – in labor and her husband, my, my great uncle Ben, who we've talked about a lot, uh, was taken to the hospital and he got hit by a cab and died. Um, it, which, what does this have to do with the subway? This, wait, wait, wait for it. So Aunt May like decided that, you know, it was Spider-Man's fault. And I guess she thought that guy was Spider-Man and tried to push him into the subway. Um, it was either my Aunt May or some like big, uh, heavy lifting, uh, bodybuilder type. I, I one or the other. What, what is um, going on with Aunt May now? It's kind of deranged. Yeah. I don't know. Apparently when my uncle Ben was dying on the pavement, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he uttered out these words, which are obviously words to live by, which is with great podcasts. There must also come amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.